0: of Mark. We are finishing out this morning uh, Mark chapter Mark chapter 8. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and you can open up to Mark 8. If you need a Bible, we have a few in the front that we would love to give you. Um, you can make your way there. Feel free to grab, turn one on, whatever you're kind of doing. We are in Mark 8. We're finishing out Mark chapter 8 um, this morning. And man I'm so excited just about about being in this final portion of Mark 8 um, because I feel like uh, I was having a conversation with a guy this past week, and we were talking about the continuity of Mark chapter 8. There is a lot in Mark chapter 8, and I wish that we had like three and a half hours to sit down and to work through the entire chapter because there is such continuity within the chapter um, as we see all of these ideas and themes being woven together. We've seen already up to this point that... We are, um, as we see Jesus in his public ministry addressing the issue of brokenness, that he is always pointing us towards the greater reality of a spiritual brokenness and a spiritual separation. that results from our rebellion from God and our parents' rebellion from God, right? From, from all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, um, that the world is currently, um, and until uh, Christ returns, feeling the effects of sin right In our persons we're witnessing it in the world um, around us it seems like every week man if we were talking about current events and how current events support the presence and the existence of a fallen and rebellious world man every day i could come up here i could open the newspaper and i could talk for 35 minutes and we could finish it out right but we need something more than that right we need something to grasp we need something to hold on to right in the face of The brokenness that we see in the world around us, in the face of evil and racism and oppression, right? We need something to grasp. And the gospel is that, right? The gospel is what we grasp, the hope of Christ. And so um, there's been a lot as it relates to those things. I can't preach it all again, or we will be here for three and a half hours. Um, But that's what we've seen up until this point in Mark (laughs) chapter Eight and so, what are we going to see this morning as we close out our time together in this chapter? We're going to answer a question, right? And it's a question that we are probably um, we've all been confronted with. We're all familiar with. That perhaps is a well. It's certainly a question that we've all answered, um, whether we fall on one side of the fence or the other, or whether we're just really confused about the whole thing altogether. (laughs) But we're going to be answering this question: What does it mean to confess Christ? All right, what does it mean to confess Christ? What I want to talk to you guys about today um, from Mark 8 centers on Peter's confession of Jesus. As the Christ, this is probably for many of you a familiar passage. If not, you couldn't point it out in a Bible. You're familiar with the story a little bit. If you're not, well, then your world is going to be rocked this morning because this is an incredible, incredible passage that we see recorded in um, in multiple Gospels. We see it here in Mark. We see a wonderful account in Matthew that we're actually going to reference again. This week, the past couple weeks, we've been paralleling um, a little bit what we see in Matthew's account and what we see in Mark's account. Matthew includes some unique details within his account that we don't see present in in Mark's. And so we're going to reference that again this morning and touch on some things that we sang about here in the beginning. Man, I love... The theology of what we sang this morning and how it just encourages our hearts towards the grace of God and His work as it relates to our salvation. Right, it's really, really good news. It makes this really, really, really big God, right, which dwarfs not only you and I, but also all of the problems um, that we have. And so that's super. That's super encouraging. Um, but we've seen up until this point. Uh, a major struggle in Mark as it relates to people and their understanding of who Jesus is, right? This has been the struggle. Who is, who is Christ? What type of Messiah is Jesus? Up until this point, we've been addressing this issue as it relates to a mass number of people, Right? Now, we are beginning to, as we saw just a few weeks ago, turn and focus more on this question as it relates to the disciples. We're seeing their framework interrupted. We're seeing their framework transformed as it relates to who is Jesus and what type of Messiah will he be. Our purpose this morning is to explore two questions that we see addressed through our passage. First... What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? That's the first part of the question that we're going to address in our time together. The second is this. What does it require for you and I to identify ourselves with him? What does it mean to be a Christian? Right? What does it mean to follow after Christ? What does it mean to submit ourselves to his lordship and to his deity and to embrace his work for the forgiveness of our sins? Right, that he might be our mediator before the Father. That we might have um, one to point to right, and one to hope in as it relates to our relationship with God. We see in the conclusion of Mark 8, first a confession and then we see an implication. And there's this is a huge passage this morning, and so I've got to move on. We've got to get there really, really soon. But we're going to see first a confession and then the implication. What does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Christ? That's the question that we are going to um, answer. And, And our aim this morning is to threefold. See Christ. To confess Christ and to follow Christ, understanding that this results in, that being our followership of Jesus, results in self-denial, self-surrender, self-sacrifice, and life. Okay, life, life experienced through um, the regeneration that is brought to our hearts as a result of God's grace and the work of the Spirit. Right? Our, our old hearts being transformed into hearts of flesh, our relationship with God being brought to life as we now cry out to him through the blood of Jesus, Abba, Father. Right. So this is this is all, it's self-denial, self-surrender, self-sacrifice. But at the end, we see that it is life that we are able to now um, experience. And so we are in Mark chapter 8 we're going to begin in verse 27 uh, with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And so I want you to as I read this morning's passage, I want you to consider the progression because we're going to see initially this man. Here here we go, like we've arrived, we finally got it. And then very soon after that, we're going to be left scratching our heads as it relates to Peter's confession. Our understanding of Peter's confession as it relates to, and follow me here, his understanding of who Jesus is, right, is interrupted as we work our way through this passage. And then we see the implications for what it means to follow after Jesus. And so let's begin there in verse 27, um, this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so this is the question that we're introduced to in verse 27 that we're going to unpack through the first portion of this passage before we get to the implications for the answer, right? So, let's look together at verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he, in response, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. me. And so even as we approach verse 35, we're working through verse 34, the implications are that all that Jesus has spoken about his messiahship and the verses prior lead us to a greater understanding of what it means for you and I to follow after Jesus. This is the implication portion. Are you guys with me? This is the implications. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of God of his Father with the holy angels. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, your word and for the gathering of your people again this morning. We pray that um, by the power of your spirit and an amazing work of grace, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what we see here um, from your your word as we conclude our time in Mark chapter 8 this morning. We love you, and we are, Father, most grateful for your love for us. And it's in the name of of our mediator, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. And so let's begin to unpack this just a little bit, right? Let's begin by addressing and understanding the confession of Peter as we see it in verses 27 through 33. Let's read verses 27 um, through, through, let me see, uh, through 33, a portion of that together again. It says here that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, right? And so we've seen Jesus ministering in this largely Gentile region. We've seen him most recently restore sight to the blind. We've seen a progression of faith in our passage last week from Mark chapter 8. And now we see Jesus geographically shifting again, right? He's moving on to a new place. And on the way, he strikes up conversation with his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers him and says, you are the Christ. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them about what the Son of Man must endure. Right, it says that they must suffer many things, that the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again, verse 32. And he said it plainly, this really simple language from Jesus here as he uh, engages in this conversation with his uh, with his disciples. But turning and seeing, oh wait, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, right? Turning and seeing his disciples, he said, uh, and rebuking Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so, what do we see? Well, following the restoration of sight to the blind man in verses 23, 22 through 26, and a display of the commitment of Jesus to the reversal of sin's effects, we see Jesus initiate this conversation with his disciples that challenges Their application and understanding, even for just a moment, displaying their progress, all related to the person of Jesus, who he is and what he has come to to accomplish. And so how important is this? What is at stake as it relates to this question that is posed by Jesus to his disciples and the response of Peter? Well, there's a lot at stake here. At stake here is our understanding of who Jesus really is, and how our lives look as we confess and submit to him as our king. And so let's not be confused. Okay, let's not be confused about what it means to make this confession about Jesus and who he is. Following after Jesus changes the way that we live our lives, and we see this in the second portion of our passage as we discuss the implications of Peter's confession. In verse 27, Jesus initiates a conversation with his disciples. What is this question in verse 27? Well, look at your Bibles. He asks them, right, who do people say that I am? What does this mean? Well, here is in essence what Jesus is asking. This is the question being posed by Jesus to his disciples. This is the question being presented. What is Right? The word on the street as it relates to who I am. As it relates to me. When people talk about me, what are they saying? Now if we survey the landscape and we consider historical Christianity and what the opinion was of Jesus in this day, we can make a handful of observations and points about what people thought about who he was, what he was doing, what he was saying, everything. I think that we can say this, that, and it looks very similar to our day. Okay, I think there's a lot of crossover. I think that there's a lot historically that informs our understanding of what people have to say about Jesus in our culture. Modern day, 2017, Carrollton, uh, Carrollton Georgia. Right? The average person at the time of Jesus is, is totally cool with buying that Jesus um, is uh, really interesting Right, that Jesus is, is really intriguing um, and certainly helpful. I mean, we've seen Jesus do a ton of, of really incredible, what we might describe as stellar things, okay, through his public ministry so far. He's fed people who are hungry. He's freed people who were spiritually oppressed. He's healed the broken. He's made uh, broken limbs to work functionally again. He's restored broken sight and healed deaf ears. These are all the things that we have seen Jesus do up to this point. And so if you survey the average citizen of the communities in which Jesus is doing ministry, in which these works are being accomplished— Much of them, many of them would say, yeah, man, Jesus is doing some really, really amazing things. And we are certainly um, grateful for, apart from a handful of situations, grateful for his time visiting our city. If we continue down the rabbit hole a little bit further, we can see that some say that Jesus is John the Baptist, we, we can reflect back on our time studying and comparing and contrasting the kingship of Jesus and the kingship of Herod earlier on in Mark's gospel as we look at the death of John the Baptist. And we can say Herod had a ton of, of issues, right? One of those was major confusion about the person and work of Jesus. He believed Jesus to be John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Thus, a guilty conscience, right, will find us Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are one of the prophets. How does Jesus respond? This is is the landscape. This is what people have to say as it relates to you in response to the question that Jesus asks them. And in response, Jesus probes his disciples even further. Verse 29, he asks them, point blank, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? that I am this is indeed the question isn't it like this is this is the question this is the question that the disciples had to answer it's a question that Mark's original audience had to answer and it's a question that we must answer and how we answer this question dictates Everything. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I want us to take note of the response of the disciples as recorded by Mark. In verse 29, Peter answers him, Jesus, you are the Christ. And so we have this contrast here in this first section of our conclusion of Mark chapter 8. We have this contrast between the belief of some. Right? Some say you are John the Baptist, some say you are Elijah, some say you are a prophet, and the opinion, right, the statement, the confession of the disciples. And so let's explore the average person for just a minute. The average person, the sum, in which we see contrasted with the confession of Peter, are undoubtedly impressed with Jesus. As we've already stated, for all the reasons that we have already said, for all of the reasons that would make you and I, regardless of where we fell in relation to confession, impressed with Jesus. But they're missing his identity as the Messiah, his being the Christ, his being the anointed one. This is what it is to be Messiah, right? To, to be the Messiah is to be anointed by the Father. So it means to be the Christ, And to be the hope of the world. And so the average person is grasping certain truths as it relates to Jesus. Impressed with, right? Um, Maybe even uh, in, in a sense grateful for, certainly curious, but totally missing that he is in fact the anointed one of the Father come to rescue the people. And so let's look at the contrasting side of this, the belief of the disciples, the confession of Peter. We see a difference of belief that centers on the person of Jesus, a belief that differs in a most fundamental and a most foundational way. The opinion, the belief, the confession of the disciples is drastically different than the confession, the belief, the opinion of the Son. Right? But only if you believe that there is something about the Christ, Jesus, that distinguishes him from anyone else. If you don't believe that there is a distinguishing characteristic about Jesus, something uniquely, utterly different about him, then it doesn't matter. This conversation doesn't matter. The conversation doesn't matter because I don't see Jesus as being anyone or anything other than um, what, uh, what we see him painted as by, uh, by the religious leaders, right? Perhaps a, a guy who began with a really solid earthly ministry and did a lot of really good things but, but created a lot of confusion and chaos and upheaval as opposed to what we confess about Jesus as Christians – Right As, as Protestants, as, as those who have been born again, that Christ has come to fulfill the law, right? In order that the law breakers might be reconciled to the Father through his sacrifice and forgiven our sins. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung says about this issue. This was an article that was published a number of years ago, and it discusses the utter uniqueness of the biblical Jesus. And so what are we doing here? Here's what I'm presenting you with. We have to do something with this uniqueness of Christ. When considering the question, and it is the most important question, who do you say that Jesus is? Right? There has to be this consideration of the uniqueness of Jesus that informs our response and ultimately our posture of adoration and the confession of our lips that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the hope of a people. Listen to what de Young has to say. This is kind of lengthy. Okay, so lean in with me and listen to this because this is so good. I tried to cut it down and I just couldn't do it. It's not worth it. It's too good. Are you guys all right with that? (laughs) Chill with me for a second and follow along. The greatness of God, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his son. And the glory of the gospel is only made evident in his son. Okay, so apart from a proper confession of the person of Jesus, then there is this awe that's missing as it relates to our response to the gospel. We must wrap our arms around the person of Jesus. We must understand him as the Christ in order to fall down in light of the good news, the proclamation of the gospel. This is why Jesus' question to his disciples is so important. Who do you say that I am? Listen to this next part. Not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Almost no one is as popular in this country as Jesus. Hardly anyone would dare to say a bad word about him. Just look at what a, and this is why I love Kevin DeYoung, a super fly, friendly dude he is. There is, of course, Republican Jesus. Who is against tax increases and uh, and activist and activist judges for uh, and for family values and of course owning firearms, right? Republican Jesus, he's a fan favorite. There's Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and of course Walmart, but who isn't, right? Um, and for reducing our carbon footprint and sending uh, other and spending other people's money. There's therapist Jesus who, who helps us to cope with all of life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who loves spiritual conversations, drives, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. You guys see why I couldn't cut any of this? Like This is incredible. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls, which if you're a Falcons fan, we know that's not true, right? (laughs) There's gentle Jesus. And good example Jesus, who shows you how to help other people change the planet and become a better you. Here's the argument that he's about to make. Okay, that that this is, while this might be a framework that is adopted by many, perhaps even within this room, what we need to understand is that biblical Jesus looks very different than this. He says, and then there's Jesus Christ the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker, but the but the one they have been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the messianic law, Yahweh in the flesh, and the one to establish God's rule and reign. The ones who heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. The Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator, come to earth, and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments in all the ways that you and I are incapable of doing, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 that would come and crush the head of the enemy. The Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood. The Christ promised to Abraham. The Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites. The Christ granted Guaranteed to Moses before he died. The Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the father's son, savior of the world and substitute for our sins more loving, more holy and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible so why is this so important? why is it so important that we that we have a right confession of the person? of Jesus. Well, it's because this is the only Jesus whose perfect sacrifice upon the cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. This is the Jesus who rescues sinners from God's wrath by taking it on on in our place. This is the Jesus who brings a new kingdom and takes possession of a people through the Father's providential plan and the Spirit's work of regeneration in our hearts. This is the Jesus that we follow. And if it's not, I'm here to say to you that it's not biblical Christianity. If you have rejected any of, of these other Jesuses, then this Jesus that we have just spoken of, then you and I are on the same page. And my encouragement to you would be this, consider the Jesus of Scripture, this Jesus, because he is better. But if you have, in this room this morning, rejected Christianity because you see Jesus as this figure that every four years reps a shirt with a big elephant on it and American flags in his hand, then you and I are on the same page. And so I would encourage you to approach the scriptures and to see the biblical Jesus because he is better. He is better. And if you have embraced any of these other Jesuses, my encouragement to you would be consider the Jesus of Scripture, this Jesus, because this Jesus is better. This is the Jesus that we confess, and this is the Jesus that we profess. So where are we in the course of this passage? So far, we've, we've explored Peter's confession, Right? And we've said, as we, as we come out of his confession, we see that things are going really, really well. Peter, Jesus asks a question, Peter, no surprise, speaks up, and Jesus points towards the catalyst for this confession in Matthew's account. What is it that gives way to such a confession? What is it that produces within us this biblical confession that you are indeed the Christ? Now, Peter's framework is drastically like out of perspective at this particular point, right? He is in need of seeing things more clearly, which we're going to touch on in just a few moments. But Jesus is pleased with his confession. If we look over at Matthew's account, um, he says this in response to Peter's confession. We don't get that in Mark's account, but in Matthew, we see Jesus says this. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, right? But, But the Father has revealed it to you. And so if we are in this room and if we have made a right confession of the person of Jesus, do you know why? You've made such a confession. The answer brings us, as we always seek to do, into a posture of worship before God. God has revealed him to you. God has opened your eyes, right? He has softened your heart, right? He has, he has restored your spiritual sight and your spiritual hearing that you might hear the gospel. And be taken captive by the Spirit of God, responding in an appropriate and God honoring and glorifying manner, that this confession might be spoken forth. Let's see what happens next, because it takes a pretty quick turn. <laughs> okay? Continuing on. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rising again. It says here in Mark that he said it plainly. Here it is. Right, here it is. It, it, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, laid out as clearly, as simply as it. Could be. We see here, as we continue our time through this portion of Mark's gospel, that Jesus, even now, as we sang earlier, has his face set towards the cross. And it's here that we see a monumental shift in framework. You see, Peter has confessed the anointing of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is God's king. And this belief has produced within him an expectation, as all beliefs do, right? Belief produces expectation. Only in this case, that expectation is not what Jesus points toward in verse 31. Peter does not have in mind a dead king, a murdered Messiah. That creates a massive amount of internal confusion and tension in Peter's mind as he hears all that Jesus has to say here. And it boils over in verse 33. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to, this is bold, rebuke him. Wow. Wow. Right? That's a shift, isn't it? In the same passage, we've gone from Peter's confession to now this rebuking, all as a result of Jesus' proclamation of the means by which this kingdom is to come into existence. Right? It's to be established, finally, and forever. Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, then rebukes Peter. And he provides a really healthy perspective. On what it looks like to change Jesus, to try to change Jesus. He says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but man. Peter, you're more concerned with the world's expectation and your framework as it relates to my kingship, right? In your mind, the king is to come, right? And we've discussed this, I mean, a handful of times. The king is to come and he is to establish his militaristic rule and reign. He is to elevate his people now while finally and forever judging God's enemies. Only we see that this isn't the way that Jesus brings about the initiation of this kingdom. This isn't the way that the kingdom comes into existence. And we shouldn't be surprised at all by this, right? Think about the Sermon on the Mount. You read Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is totally countercultural. It runs totally against the grain as it relates to what people's expectation was for Jesus then and what people's expectation often is for Jesus now. We see that the biblical Jesus embraces the cross. He embraces the cross before the crown. And that there is a clear realization from Christ that the salvation of sinners is made possible through his suffering. Anything other than this is not kingdom perspective. That's what Peter is saying, or that's what Jesus is saying to Peter here. Full clarity for the disciples has yet to be realized. Peter knows that because he just got it laid on him, right? He's not fully seeing clearly. Think about what we saw last week, and we see the issue of the blind man. Jesus spits on his eyes, and he he begins to restore sight. He asks the man, do you see anything? And the guy says, well, I see a bunch of people, but they look like trees. This is where the disciples are at this moment. They're not seeing everything clearly. A time comes in which they will following the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit. How do we know that? Well, because then we see them begin to embrace the same path that Jesus embraces, right? Death as a result of following after the Christ. There's, there's a confession, but there's not full clarity just yet. And so let's move on to the second portion of our passage. We see see the confession. Now let's explore the implication a little bit. Jesus calls the crowd to himself with his disciples, and he says to them, right? And it's here that Jesus lays out the implications for his followers. What is the expectation of a disciple? If you're in this room here this morning, right, and you are a follower of Christ— What is the expectation for a disciple of Jesus? What does it look like to follow after Jesus? He says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And so let's make just a few observations about the Christian life that follows after the biblical Jesus. The Christian life is a life of self-denial. The Christian life is a life of self-denial. Let's make this really practical for a moment. okay? That is to say that your plans and your expectations for your life prior to your confession of Christ and his divine love being placed upon you, now take a back seat. Let's say that even more simply. To follow Jesus is to relinquish control. To follow Jesus is to relinquish control. It's that from beginning to end. That's what a confession does, right? We are brought to this, to this posture of humility, confessing Christ as king and as our righteousness, as the substitute for our sins that makes relationship with the Father possible, that is impossible apart from the work of Jesus, out of this realization that our work is insufficient, out of this realization that we are abandoning, we are all but abandoning our expectations. They take a back seat. We relinquish control. We abandon our expectations for a carefree and a tension free life. This is not what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're going, Yeah, like, I know, right? The Christian life is one that runs in stark contrast to to the world around us. What we believe and then how we act. It runs in, in complete contrast. And it's not hard to see that. And as a result, it brings about oftentimes tension in our life as it relates to our relationship with the world around us. To to be a Christian, to to follow after Jesus, is to embrace the very real possibility of difficulty and hardship for your time here on earth. So let's make this massive statement. Here as we begin working towards our, our our next truth. You cannot love Jesus and follow Jesus and be in the driver's seat of your life. You just can't do it. You cannot embrace Jesus and follow Jesus and be in the driver's seat of your life. Does that mean if you came into this room this morning and your plans are to um, to, to study well, right, and to, to go off and to become a, I don't know, a doctor, that you need to abandon those plans altogether? Well, like, that was my plan, but my plan's backseat. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. For some of you, it might, <laughs> okay? Let's well, be real. For some of you, it might mean that. But for others, it just means that the reason that we do what we do is transformed as a result of our following after Christ. That the way that we do what we do is transformed as we follow after Christ. We are not in the driver's seat. Our expectations for our lives and our desires for how they might look have to, have to take back seat. They can't be in the driver's seat. That cannot dictate our lives. It can't dictate our actions. It can't dictate how we relate with other people and the things that we do, the things that we say. The implications of Jesus' statement before these people is not lost on them. How do we know that? Well, because he speaks of picking up a cross and and following after him, right? What is the cross, man? It is offensive and it is vile. It was ugly and for many the ultimate display of shame. And Jesus gets that. Jesus gets that. And he continues on in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Listen to what he says here. This is a familiar verse I would would venture to say for many of us. But I want us to, to sit in it for just a moment. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake. And the gospels will save it. And so Jesus paints a very real, very strange picture of the life submitted to him. A life that welcomes suffering for his name while toting a symbol of death and shame. He presents this perplexing paradigm shift. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose it for the sake of Christ and the gospel, you will save it. And so we can say this, that the gospel brings about this grand reversal, right? The gospel brings about a grand reversal, that it's not as we try to save our lives that our lives are saved, but when we surrender our lives, that we realize that Salvation, that our lives are that our lives are saved. Christ's statement points towards a sinner's submission and the life that results. And so we can say this that, that, that really, right, life, true life, rich life, eternal life, is experienced through loss. Right? The cross says that we can experience life because, momentarily, the Christ lost his. right, and, and the resurrection says that it is all worth it because we get Christ. We get Christ. Victorious over, over death punished in our place so that we might be sons and daughters of God, right? And so whereas we see Peter, he, he, he says, no, surely this is not to be. He is in that moment attempting to, to grasp Jesus' life, right, and to pull it from that which has been predestined before the foundation of the world. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. And right? if you try to save your life, You'll lose it. But if you lose your life, if you sacrifice your life, right? If you see your inability, your failure, you confess Jesus, me as the Messiah, as the Christ. Then, then you will find your life. Man, this is this is incredible. This is incredible. And so as we close, I want us to reflect on what we have seen. And I want us to ask a series of questions in light of what we have read. Okay, so what do we need to see? Let us see that Jesus confirms Peter's confession. Peter speaks forth this comp- confession. That's in the first part of our passage. And all the disciples are just kind of like, yes, like, okay. We're going to get on board with what, with what he said, right? And Jesus, as we look to Matthew's account, says, absolutely. And this is a miracle, right? This is incredible that you have made this confession is a gift of grace. And so let us see that Jesus confirms Peter's confession. And then ask ourselves, is this the Jesus that we are following? Right? Is, is this the Jesus that you are following? Right? Does the Jesus that, that you follow call you towards self-surrender and, and a place of rest and confidence in him, come what may? Or is he more comfortable than that? Right? Settling for my satisfaction in the things of this world over him. Things that will leave us disheartened and, and, and broken and sorrowful, exhausted. They will leave us, they will leave us exhausted. So see that Jesus confirms Peter's confession and let us follow with said confession. Number two, man, let us kill the idol of self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction and look toward the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Kill the idol, and let's not kid ourselves, it is an idol. Self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction is an idol. Let us put it to death and look towards the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Know that following after him will result, based on what we've seen from this passage this morning, difficulty and hardship, okay, and joy and life. Joy Unimaginable, joy uncorruptible, right? Fulfillment and satisfaction that cannot be realized through the things of this world. I love what Charles Spurgeon said as it relates to our following, our following after Christ by way of the cross, as we see Jesus say here, which is all made possible through the power of the Spirit. Living this type of life, this is, let's just be clear, a supernatural life. This is a supernatural life. It's not something that we do naturally, that we desire naturally. It requires that our minds be transformed and our hearts be made alive. The gospel transforms the way that we live. And Jesus' work enables us now to follow after him. Right. Jesus's word enables us now to follow after him. His death in our stead makes it possible that by the strength that he provides, we might pick up our crosses and follow after him. And that doing so, we might count it as joy. We might count it as joy. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say. He says, Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your sufferings. And so if you come into the room this morning and you go, man, Jesus suffered, looks like I don't have to, right? Clear sailing and smooth seas for me the rest of the way. Dude, harsh reality. This is not the way of the world, right? It's not the way way that it's going to happen. And you can know that. You can know that and you can have confidence in that. But he goes on to say, he bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. That you may endure it. We can, as God's people, have trust and confidence that the work that he has initiated and begun in us, he will bring to completion. And so all of God's people... In the midst of an uncertain world and difficult circumstances and hard days. I'm not, I'm not immune to hard days. Like, I'm not immune to that. And, and neither are you. That in the midst of hardship, Christ is faithful. He is faithful. And God is committed to the glory of his name realized in this world, in this place, in your life, and that in it all. It works for your ultimate good. I and mean, We need to know that. We need to know that and we need to realize that because life is going to be hard. Know that the suffering of this life is endurable only because Christ has already endured it for us. That is the hope of the gospel. And so as we close our time together this morning, I mean, we cling to the gospel because we've seen this confession that we desire to to follow, right? A confession that is uh, revealed by by. By God, outside of ourselves, realized, confessed, right, rested in, rested on, labored for that will bring about difficulty, and that we can endure it as God's people, and because because He has endured it for us, that's good news. Let's pray.